This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Chris Wildeman, your usual host for Doing Translational Research, um, which is a program of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. It's like the longest uh, podcast title ever. I'm here with Martha Holden, um, who is one of my favorite people, slash who I also find vaguely intimidating. So if I if I sound afraid at any point in the interview, that um, that's why. Um, so Martha's amazing. Um, Martha runs the Residential Child Care Project here at Cornell, which is in the Bronfenbrenner Center. I, we're going to depart a little bit from the sort of usual way that we do things on the show. Usually what we do is we ask people sort of how their research either became translational or nature in nature or how they're thinking about moving that direction. I think with you, it might be great to just start instead with what the programs you've designed have been sort of all about. Um, and then we can talk maybe a little bit about how you've folded more research into that or a larger research infrastructure into that down the road. Okay. Well, that's, whether it's okay or not, it's how yeah. we're going to do it. <laughs> okay, well, all right. So, so tell, me about, tell me about sort of why you started doing the work you do, um, you know, what sorts of things you... Um, hope to accomplish with it, um, how you continue to get all this funding year after year? Um, we started our work uh, to address, I think, a very marginalized and um, vulnerable population. And um, our work is specifically, at least in the beginning, aimed for children who were living in uh, institutions who are living in residential uh, organizations or group homes or juvenile justice facilities. And uh, we started focusing on that because at that time, uh, the center, which was the Family Life Development Center, had a mission to prevent child abuse. And we were called in to take a look at uh, the abuse happening in institutions. Mm. Um, so, uh, I think we've always done translational research because this project began by taking a look at where were all these allegations of abuse coming from, what were the conditions under which these uh, children were either being abused or feeling that they were being abused. And what we discovered was they were coming out of situations in which the staff, the care staff, the staff who were with them 24-7 were trying to manage their challenging and aggressive behavior. And through that interaction, people got hurt or uh, emotionally uh, traumatized. And so when we reported those findings, actually it was for the state of New York, they said, well, can you do something about it? And so we said we'd try. And out of that, which was in the 70s, um, before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in the 70s. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> um, we developed this training program at that point to uh, 
train staff to try and prevent aggressive incidents, but if they happened, how to manage them as safely as possible and without either injuring or re-traumatizing the children. Can I interject? Sure. So what are what are some of the strategies that folks would typically use that are really ineffective? Or what were some of the things that you saw that you knew you needed to try to correct? It's probably the most common thing that happens is uh, there's a power struggle. Mm. So uh, a staff person would say, go to your room. It's bedtime. And the kid says, well, I won't say it, what the kid would sometimes say, but essentially say, forget about it. I'm not doing it. And then, you know, the staff standing there, there are eight or ten other kids watching, and they think, i got to stay in control. Well, you got to go to your room. Well, I'm not going to my room. Well, I'll help you to your room. And then they touch the kid, and the kid swings at him, and then you have essentially some sort of counteraggression and aggression and a fight. And um, very often people would get hurt. And so that was essentially where we began is to try and think about, okay, what competencies, what skills, what mindset does do those staff people need in order to basically avoid that kind of situation? And then there's, you know, a dozen other things around that about trying to create conditions in an organization where children feel safe and don't feel like they have to fight for control of their lives and their choices and where they develop good relationships with the staff that care for them so that a lot of that can be avoided. But we also developed part of the training that says if it gets physical, how do you actually try and contain and keep people safe without causing injury? So, How do you do that? Well, it's very, very difficult, okay. and, and still to this day, we wrestle with that. Um, and is that where some of the work you did on restraints yes, comes in? Okay. Yes, and so through the years, what we've done and um, is continually looked at the literature, and we've learned so I mean, in 40 years, our whole view of these children has transformed. Uh, understanding what we do now about trauma and the effects on child development, especially on brain development, uh, has has helped us develop uh, better strategies and techniques to avoid these situations and understand, which is most important, how to help staff help children develop the executive functioning of the brain so that, that children don't go into panic mode and, and feel like they're about to be abused, even mm-hmm. when they're not, and strike out. So... Um, We've just, we're putting the finishing touches on the seventh edition of this program. So we developed it um, in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's still uh, the major part of our project. Um, It's evolved. It's a system now. Uh, We know that organizations need much, much more than training frontline staff to do this. They need a whole system in place where everybody takes a role in how to create an organization that can um, create setting conditions that reduce uh, incidents. Um, And so I think what started out as this small research study in institutions in New York State has evolved into an international program um, that not only residential, juvenile justice, group home programs use, we have now uh, an addition of it for schools 
uh, and we have it in foster care. So it's widely used in a lot of countries. I think you're being modest by saying a lot of countries. Like it seems like you're in every country in the world yeah. every year somehow. Well, um, it's mostly the English-speaking world, but um, it has been translated into Hebrew and Russia, Russian and French. So we do have some people doing it in other languages. That's a lot of countries. Yeah. So this program, Therapeutic Crisis Intervention System, um, which is uh, – as I said, now a system that has roles for people in all levels of the organization um, has been probably the main focus of the residential child care project until about 10 or 12 years ago. Okay. And that was when we decided that we needed a much broader approach to help organizations uh, care for children and that just if organizations, all they did was our TCI program, Therapeutic Crisis Intervention, then everything looked like a crisis. Mm -hmm. And that was really designed to address the 10% of the situations that they should be dealing with. And that a lot of organizations didn't have any kind of organizational something that helped everybody work together with the same theory of change, the same organizational yep. philosophy to make uh, it more powerful and consistent for the kids in their care. So that's when we developed the care program. Yeah. Cool. I have two I have two questions that I should totally know the answer to because we've worked together for a long time or what feels like a long time <laughs> to me now. Um, it, but I don't because I don't pay attention probably. Um, the So... And you can just answer them together. So the the first question is, um, you know, given sort of increasing knowledge that we have about brain development, have you thought about um, trying to apply some of these insights into adult correctional facilities too? So that's question number one. And then question number two is, um, so you're focusing on basically sort of human capital development after the point of hire with the programs, right? You're giving people specific trainings throughout the organization that can help them deal with complex situations better. I mean, it might be interesting to hear a little bit too about if there are things that you wish organizations were able to look for in the hiring process oh. that could also... So are there specific sort of set characteristics that you see where you see folks are able to adopt these mm -hmm. sorts of skills really quickly. Sorry, those are like two totally different they questions. They really are. <laughs> so uh, for the first one, have we thought about uh, translating some of this into adult populations? Yes, off and on throughout the years. Also thought about especially TCI mm. for, for nursing homes mm. because mm -hmm. there's a lot of aggression. And, um, again, you have the same people who are working with folks living and not at home yep. with, with relatives. Um, but uh, we've built this team. Uh, one of the things that's really important to us on our extension side for, the, for our field people who are out training and working with organizations to implement these programs is that they have uh, experience in the field. So we're all focused on working with children. And I think unless we had some sort of funding or, or real opportunity to fully develop it, 
for adults. I don't think any of us feel like we have the mm. experience and expertise to do that. Mm -hmm. But we've looked into it in mm -hmm. the past. Um, as to, I think our care program is one that has helped organizations focus on who they should be hiring. And mm. that's the feedback we get continually from organizations who have implemented care. Ah, okay. Um, it changes who they hire. Uh, they're looking for people who have a certain mindset, and they're looking for people who are past technical thinkers because we're giving them a principle-based model where they're going to ask their caregivers to actually stop, think, and choose assessments, choose interventions based on the assessment they make about what that child feels, needs, expects, wants at any given moment. Whereas historically, people usually hire either people by the pound, if they're yeah. thinking they need people to handle yeah, aggressive yeah, behavior, sure. or they're hiring people who will follow uh, like behavior management systems or things where if the child does this, you do that. And these children are so much more complex than that. Yeah. So they're hiring a different workforce that can deal with the complexity of the work they're actually being asked to do. And uh, I mean, this is, uh, sorry, like I, I'm interested in what you do, so I have a bunch of random questions. You know that this is the way my mind works. So the, I mean, one thing that what you just said kind of launches for me is, so in, so in organizations where you're managing difficult situations, often you have really specific protocol. Correct. In order to decrease the probability of getting sued because mm. there's a set protocol where everybody knows what's going to happen. And so I guess it would be interesting to hear how do organizations think about sort of risk management mm. within that setting where they're essentially expecting their workforce to have sort of a more varied toolkit than mm -hmm. I think they would have been expected to have before. Has that ever been something that folks have talked about or is it? In some ways, that's exactly what our TCI program is because yeah. uh, it's it's not a one-shot training. It's just the basic part of it is five days where you have to not only learn things about theory of uh, stress models, mm. uh, crisis models, uh, theories about trauma, brain development, um, theories about how to combine cognitive restructuring and behavioral rehearsal. I mean, it's not laid out like that in the course, but there's a lot of theory underpinning that. Um, you have to also be able to do dynamic risk assessment, and part of that is um, following protocols, but assessing the risk as the event mm -hmm. unfolds, because at any given time, uh, there's a set of uh, elements that are either increasing the risk or decreasing the risk, and you're wanting to you know, pick interventions that actually decrease. So it's, again, very, very complex. So the protocols are good. You do need them because there's only under certain circumstances, and I think an agency needs to be very clear under what circumstances are you actually going to use high-risk interventions. Yep. Uh, but you still have to have the person who's sitting in that situation, or at this point standing in that situation, having the ability to assess the risk. Yeah. And what, what components of the training do folks tend to find most challenging? I think it's actually, well, it depends who you're training. If yeah. we're uh, working with the folks who are actually 
uh, the caregivers, I think that they often struggle with two parts. One is uh, when we're simulating being in that moment where the child is in your face threatening, mm. how do you regulate your own self? Yeah. How do you keep yourself um, in tune with how the child is experiencing you? and then make choices so you, the child's experiencing you as a safe haven or a secure base and not as a threat. And that's really difficult when you yourself may feel under threat. Sure. So there's that part that's, that's difficult. The other part is actually doing the follow-up, the, the, what we call it the life space interview, which is a, a well-used um, strategy in the field since the 50s, by the way. Um, but it's that moment after the crisis when everybody's more or less back to baseline where there's an opportunity to sit with that child and you want to reestablish the relationship that you have with that child to make sure that's intact, but then to deconstruct what happened, help the child understand um, how they're feeling in a moment physically, emotionally, mm. and how that triggered that survival response where they either fought or flee mm. or froze and then help them figure out other strategies. That's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of training we do to help people uh, go through the steps of that type of a debriefing. Cool. Okay. Switching. Okay. Um, so... You just got a big grant, or you got a big grant a couple of years ago. Two, Two big grants a couple of years ago. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, especially about the center grant through SAMHSA. Oh, the SAMHSA grant. Yeah. I mean, it would just be, I, I, this is just my naive impression, but, you know, you've, you've sort of been doing research all along the way mm -hmm. as you're, you know, the research is informing the practice, and there's this sort of really positive feedback loop that's happening along the way. But it seems like just in the last couple of years that you've gotten really substantial sort of grants that are more research focused. And it, I guess it would just be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about whether there are different expectations, how you think about managing those, or, or sort of what the specific work that folks were interested in was. So... And the SAMHSA grant is not necessarily a, a research grant, although the components that contribute to the translational research of our mm -hmm. project, are, it's allowing us to take a look at some components of both of our models, TCI and CARE, uh, to help develop them in a very uh, evaluative and research way. So. Now our focus is on in TCI fidelity, um, which is always the case. Yeah. We have a model. Uh, we have good evidence that it works, um, but it only works if you're implementing it and using it the way it's designed and helping agencies develop ways to not only sustain the model but uh, keep it with fidelity is something that we've been trying to do for a long time. And the SAMHSA grant has helped us to do that with TCI and also with CARE. And with CARE, CARE is a much younger 
program. So we're just starting that work. So that's been really important. And I believe uh, we received the grant for two reasons. And one is there's very, very little research in this country around out-of-home care, Mm -hmm. residential care. There's not been any kind of significant funding in that, I think, for 20 or 30 years from the federal government. And certainly nothing that would focus on actual conditions. You get sort of fact of out-of-home placement, but you don't get anything on sort of the texture of out-of-home no, placement. No, uh, yeah. people are looking at it so simplistically, it's like, it's bad. <laughs> but yet, we keep putting children in it because regardless of what people think, I mean, group care has been around since, I don't know, 2000 BC. I don't think it's going to go away. Right. But there's this, it, it can be done badly, but it also can be beneficial. But no one is trying to do any research about, okay, who does it work for, under what conditions, and what time frame, and, you know, because there are children who are not going to be able to be cared for in a family setting. They're just, that just seems to be a fact. So the idea that we had managed with a private foundation to actually develop evidence about the care model and that it was effective and Mm -hmm. it did actually provide for better outcomes for children, I think, gave at least SAMHSA, some faith that they could fund us to become uh, a center for creating trauma-informed residential settings so that we had a couple of models that were worth investing in in helping residential organizations be more effective at working with these young people who have experienced complex trauma. Okay, great. Yeah, so we're very excited about that. We're very excited about it, too, at the center. Yeah. (laughs) You even got a cake. I did get a cake. Um, Well, it was a moment. (laughs) (laughs) So I I guess sort of the the final question, and by the way, please tell Jack I say hi. I I just want that to be on the air. Um, So the... I love Martha's husband, um, just so that's on the on the record. The, uh, and this is not creepy. <laughs> <laughs> or well, least, maybe or, a little creepy, or, but we've gotten past the creepiness right, exactly. of it. <laughs> Carrie is unconvinced that we've gotten past it. Um, You're Carrie's, not alone, Carrie. Carrie's like, I'm editing this whole thing out. Um, so the, I think one... Um, Sort of the closing kind of question. So you've interacted with a lot of academics over your professional career, like a bunch of, you know, tenure track faculty member kind of types. Um, and I guess the, the thing that I'd be interested to hear is as somebody who knows a lot about research but also knows a lot about practice, what are the – you can either frame it negatively or positively. I mean, I guess – what are the things that faculty tend to do wrong when they want to do research that could do good? And, and the positive way to frame it, I guess, is what are things that faculty who want to do research in the service of public good, what, what could folks do to achieve that better? I'm trying. Well, one thing about actually finding people who will do research in our project has not been easy. Yeah. Uh, but we have found some amazing researchers that have, at least for me, so exceeded any kind of expectation that I ever had of the kind of meaningful uh, research that could be done. And, um, and I think we hang on to these people for a long time on our project. Um, 
because if they stay with it, what they are able to see is how their research is translated mm. into better practice. And they actually can go visit these agencies. They can talk to the staff. They can talk to the kids and just find out what impact their findings has had on you know, vulnerable human beings mm. or very dedicated uh, professionals. To me, the downside is it, these people who will do this as far and few be between. Mm. And I actually think, well, partially it's because our field of practice as well as research is so small. Mm -hmm. And it's not been encouraged in the United States. I mean, I interact with many, many, many more researchers in other countries than I do in the U.S. But the other is it's really messy. Mm. It's frustrating. Mm -hmm. It's hard to uh, develop the kind of partnerships with agencies that allow this type of hands-on research. And I think when you meet with faculty who haven't worked with us before, they've had experiences trying to do that, and it's probably not been that successful. And I think it's hard for them to believe that, no, we have hundreds of organizations out there who would love to do research with you, and they do cooperate. And yeah. so that keeps us from, I think, getting more faculty involved. And I think it is a stumbling block for faculty researchers to do that. It's much easier to, if you want to do research with young people, is to use your college students. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, that's true. Um, okay. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer, um, even though I always enjoy our conversations. But thanks so much for joining us on um, doing translational research. It was great to have you here, Martha. You're welcome. This was actually fun. <laughs> you sound surprised, which hurts my feelings. All right. No, no. We're done. <laughs> information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.